Well, uh, it's, great, it's great to be here again tonight. It's, a, it's just a pleasure and a joy to be with you. Yes, we ate an awesome breakfast this morning. That was amazing. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and I had an amazing dinner. I've been, I've been eating well while I'm here. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think fitting with that theme, since I'm from Kentucky, one of the children came up and I don't know if he was thanking me, but he was saluting Kentucky Fried Chicken. So um, kind of, that kind of fits with the theme of our introduction tonight. So, um, well, let's pray and uh, get, get started again. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We, we do pray again that you'd help us to, uh, to hear it and to hear it in our hearts and to uh, let it shape us and comfort us and challenge us and uh, fill the horizon of our lives in a new way. We, we pray your Holy Spirit would come and help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So last night, I started out by saying, what do we say to new Christians and I cited several verses, mainly from Acts. And what do we say? We say, hang in there. Hang in there, right? That, that's what Paul was saying. Continue in the grace of God. And then what do we say to all Christians? And it was the same thing, right? First Peter 5, stand firm in the grace of God. Uh, don't, don't receive God's grace in vain. And then for the rest of the time, I looked at the warning passages. First, I gave you a quick typology. I won't do that again of different views. But my view is the warnings are addressed to believers. They're about salvation, right? And uh, those, those who truly belong to God, the warnings will be the means... I'll talk about that more, especially tomorrow morning in the church service. The warnings will be the means by which they're kept and they're preserved. And then we just read a ton of warning passages, right? Uh, The one who endures to the end will be saved from Matthew. We read from John, if you don't abide in me, you're thrown away as a branch. We, We read in Galatians, Christ is of no benefit to you if uh, you accept circumcision. We, we, read in, we read in Paul that if you don't continue in God's kindness, you too will be uh, cut off. And we read in Second Timothy that if we deny Christ, he'll deny us. And so forth and so on. And then I, I finished talking about those warning passages in Hebrews. And I just want to remind you, I said we ought to interpret those synoptically, which means to see them all together. Those warning passages in chapter 2, chapter 3 and 4, chapter 5 and 6, chapter 10 and chapter 12, they, should, they all mutually interpret each other. They all warn us that if, uh, if, if one falls away, uh, uh, that one is damned. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we saw some warnings in, in uh, Revelation as well. The, the, the call is to persevere, continue to the end, to be saved. That's, that's what we saw. So 
So if that's true, we have to ask, what is, what is perseverance? We need to persevere to the end to be saved. Then what are we talking about? And what I want to talk about tonight is to say what perseverance isn't. <laughs> okay? But I think that's helpful. What isn't? What, what are we not talking about when we're talking about perseverance? So I'm actually going to talk about that tonight and tomorrow in Sunday school. Do you still call it Sunday school? Okay. People change the names, right? But so tonight, perseverance is not perfection. And then uh, tomorrow morning, perseverance in Sunday school, perseverance is not works righteousness. So tonight, perseverance is not perfection. And I have six points. If you're a person who writes things down, I have six points that show us that perseverance isn't the same as perfection. And here's the first point. Perseverance is not perfection because as believers, we pray, we pray for forgiveness. We, 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 we don't just pray for forgiveness once. We regularly pray for forgiveness. And that is taught to us in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught, said, Matthew 6, verse 12, Forgive us our debts. Sins are viewed there as debts we owe. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So I grew up as a Catholic. I think I told you that last night. Catholics memorize the Lord's Prayer. I said the Lord's Prayer a lot of times as a Catholic. I don't think I ever said it once, really, sincerely. I said it a lot of times. But I memorized it. And I said it regularly. Now, now here's something I want to say. Maybe this doesn't apply to you. The Lord taught this prayer to his disciples so that they pray it regularly. A lot of Protestants hardly ever pray it. I've found in my years now of being a Christian. But he taught us this prayer so we'd memorize it and pray it often. Not mechanically, right? Not just ritualistically. But it's to be a regular prayer for us as Christians. We, we are to regularly pray, forgive us our sins, right? You know, Augustine, one of the great church fathers who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, he had an opponent named Pelagius. Maybe you've heard of this. Augustine and Pelagius. Pelagius believed basically that Christians could be perfect. So basically what I'm talking about tonight. So this is an old debate. Pelagius argued that Christians could be perfect, that they could be without sin. And you can still read today Augustine's anti Pelagian writings, the big fat book. I did not read all of it, but I read a lot of it. And this is one of Augustine's favorite verses. And I think rightly so. You know what Augustine says over and over again? He says, Pelagius, Jesus taught us this prayer. Why would Jesus teach us to regularly pray this prayer if we can be perfect? 
No, 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 we can't be perfect. All of us as Christians, we need to pray this prayer until we die. Because all of us, every single one of us, we're still, we still struggle with sin and we still sin until we, the day we die. And therefore, since we still sin and still ask for forgiveness until the day we die, then perseverance isn't perfection, is it? That's not, that's, perseverance ought not to be confused with being perfect. And, and, and we see this as well in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light, this is 1 John 1, 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I think this verse is fascinating because you're walking in the light. That means you're walking in holiness, right? You're following the Lord as he is in the light. When you do that, you have fellowship with one another in the church, right? But at the same time, the blood of Jesus is cleansing you from all sin. But, but then, do you see this? Then, as you're walking in the light, there's still some sin in your life, right? He's cleansing you from sin as you're walking in the light. So walking in the light isn't perfection, is it? Yeah, it is walking in holiness, but it's not absolute perfection. And, and, and the very next verse confirms this, right? If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I've never met anyone, by the way, except for one person who said they were sinless. Um, that was uh, a non-Christian and she was 70 years old. I, I remember it so well because when she said it, I was so stunned I didn't know what to say next. <laughs> I was like, what? I could have said, you just sinned right now when you said that. But I didn't. I, I was just like, wow. I, I've never heard anybody say that. So if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think John's thinking there of the Lord's Prayer. What do, what do we do as Christians? We regularly confess and admit our sins. When we do so, he's faithful and just to forgive us. If we, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, perseverance is not perfection. Because part of what it means to breathe in the Christian life, right, is to regularly acknowledge and confess and admit that we're in sin, right? That we sin. Or maybe I shouldn't say in sin, but that we sin. We regularly confess that and bring that uh, to the Lord. Secondly, perfection, this one rhymes, Perfection is at the resurrection. Perfection is at the resurrection, but not before. Perfection is at the resurrection of the body, but not before. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. I'm going to read several verses. The Apostle Paul says in verse 11 that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, we're not going to worry about that first line. That's an interesting statement. But he's talking about attaining the resurrection, right? 
That's on the final day. That what does he say next? Not that I have already obtained this. So by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection, but it's not that I've, I'm not there yet, he says. Or, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Do you see that? He, he, he puts uh, the resurrection, obtaining the resurrection and perfection together. Not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect because that perfection comes when? At the resurrection, right? I, I like this, just, but I press on to make it my own. I, I, I grasp after it, after it because Christ Jesus has made me his own, or, or that could be translated, Christ Jesus has grasped me. So, so Paul doesn't say, well, you know, I can't be perfect. I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to be passive. No, he says, I press on. I press on. I press on to grasp the prize because Christ has grasped on to me. Brothers, verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Brothers, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I'm perfect now. But one thing I do, this is a great call for all of you, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to, lie, to what lies ahead. I'm, Paul's not saying, don't think of anything that ever happened in your past, but we're to be forward directed as Christians, right? Thank God for the great things he's done in the past, but forget what lies behind. Praise God for it, you know? I think of when our kids were little in our home, I loved it. You know, not every minute, right? But most of the time, right? It was great. Um, but that, that's over. We're, we're, to look, we're to look forward. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You, in the past, there's successes. There, there's failures, right? In the past, there's highs. There's lows, maybe incredible lows. There's, there's triumphs, and there, there may be deep, deep regrets. And Paul says, don't, don't focus on the past. Go forward to what's coming. So, yeah, we're not, we're not perfect now. That's coming at the resurrection. But press on. Press on, brothers and sisters, at this church, right? Celtus Baptist Church. And I've heard, by the way, this is parenthetical. I am giving the official name of this church. So this is the official pronouncement. Anybody who says Kelties, there'll be a time of repentance afterwards. So, so anyway, I should not have said that. If you want to stone me, start right now. So anyway, back to, back to Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 10. Perfection at the resurrection. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So, right, we're, we're kind of, we're new, but there's still oldness in us. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
The day is coming when our bodies will be raised by the Holy Spirit. And now the body is dead because of sin. So the, the emblem of the continuing presence of sin in us is our mortal body. Our bodies are good. God created them. But they carry about in them death and still sin. As long, as long as we're in our mortal bodies, sin still resides in us. What reminds us of sin? Every gray hair, every wrinkle, every sickness, right? Our weariness. Even if you're young, right, you can experience that or get sick. We're reminded we live in mortal bodies. And, and I'm, I'm not saying we get sick because we sin, right? We get sick because there's sin in the world and there's still sin in our mortal bodies, right? That perfection will come when we shed our mortal bodies and have new bodies at the resurrection. Paul says a few verses later, Romans 8, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. So we, our final redemption, the final work of perfecting us takes place when our bodies are redeemed, when we're raised from the dead, that's, that's at the resurrection of the dead. So perseverance is not perfection because what? We, we pray, we pray for forgiveness and we pray that regularly as Christians. We breathe in and out praying for forgiveness. And secondly, because perfection is ours at the resurrection. Perfection is ours at the resurrection. Thirdly, the exhortations in the letters show we are not perfect. The exhortations, the admonitions, the commands, that's what I mean by exhortations, the commands, the encouragements, instructions in, in the letters of the New Testament, the epistles, those letters show that we are not yet perfect. So 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So that's interesting. That's what we are. But maybe, you know, I'm older. I feel that more even in American culture than I did when I was young. I mean, our culture is, you know, moved more dramatically away from the Christian faith than when I was young. So we're sojourners and exiles. I urge you. And what does he urge them? To abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from those. So what's interesting about that? As Christians, we have passions for the flesh. By flesh here, he means sin, right? For, for, for ungodly things. You know, you ought not to think, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I desire, I have passions I have passions, some passions, to do what's wrong. And then you say, well, I must not be a Christian. Maybe I'm not persevering. No. What does he say? Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Well, you don't, you don't, you're not going to need that command in heaven, right? <laughs> you don't need that command if you're perfect. 
No, we, we need that command because those passions are still there. I'm not done. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, which wage war against the soul. How strong are those passions? It's a war. It's a battle. You know, I, I've heard some Christians, or maybe, yeah, whether they're Christians, people who call themselves Christians, they give up and say, wow, the temptation's so strong to sin. I just give up. That's what Peter, Peter's saying. Now, I, I thought, I'm, I'm 67 now. You know, I've been a Christian since 1971. That's 51 years. You know, I thought, well, when I'm an, when I'm an old Christian, I won't, even, I won't even have those desires. I'll have no temptations. That's not true, right? We're in a war. And the war lasts a long time, as long as you're alive. You're, we're, under, we're in a war. There's a battle. And, and what does he say? Uh, abstain from those. He gives us an exhortation. We wouldn't need that exhortation if we were perfect. Galatians 5, verse 17. Galatians 5, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There it is again, right? There's a great battle in us between the flesh and the spirit. They're fighting against one another. There's a war. There's a battle. There's a struggle. If you're in that struggle, that doesn't mean you're not persevering, right? That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you've lost the war. You're in the middle of the war. Uh, There was in Martin Luther's day uh, a person named uh, Dr. Krauss. Uh, Obviously, Dr. Krauss was a very educated man. He was a doctor. Um, But Dr. Krauss began to believe that Christ was accusing him before the Father. So what was, what was the message in Dr. Krauss's head? He began to believe that Christ is accusing me before the Father. And he killed himself. He committed suicide. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't live with that, right? He couldn't, he couldn't live with the idea that Christ was accusing him before the Father. And... Uh, Luther said after he died, uh, Dr. Krauss was listening to the wrong message, right? There's nothing in Scripture that says Christ doesn't do that. No, Luther said Christ is our mediator. He's our intercessor. It's just the opposite. Christ pleads his blood before the Father and pleads the forgiveness of God's saints. So I think Dr. Krauss... I don't know. I think he was probably a believer. And he struggled at that one point and sinned. No excuses for that. But I think he was probably a believer. But, but he, was, he started in that struggle between the flesh and the spirit. He, he, be, he began to hear a wrong message, right? And he, and he started to condemn himself wrongly. 
So there's that battle we're in, that battle, that struggle, the, 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 some failures in the battle, right? That battle, that struggle, that, that doesn't mean you're not a believer. That doesn't mean you're not authentic. The, 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 the danger is when you put down your sword, right? But we keep fighting. Luther said, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means we repent every day. Every day we relearn the gospel. Every day we repent anew. Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So I read that verse last night, but here tonight I want to... What do we do as Christians? By means of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, what do we do? We, we kill, we put to death the deeds of the body. Well, what are the deeds of the body in this context? They're sin, right? And it's sin that's attractive. So, so what does he say we do? We kill it. We kill sin. We mortify it. We, we put it to death. That's not easy. In fact, we can't do it on our own. We have to do it by the power of the Spirit, by depending on God and being filled with His Word, right? But, but Paul gives this exhortation to Christians, and that means, that means, just like we saw in 1 Peter, right? I'm saying the same thing. That means there's a great struggle in us. That struggle, that struggle doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Right? That's, that we're at war. We're at war till the day we die. So, perseverance is not perfection. Because what? We regularly pray for forgive, forgive my sins for Christ's sake. And, and secondly, because perfection is at the resurrection. And thirdly, because the exhortations in the letters, those exhortations, they show that we're not perfect. They show we're in a great battle and a great war. Fourth, fourthly, even, even the best Christians can do better. Even the best Christians can do better. Nobody has arrived in this life. We can always improve. You know, James in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, says we're justified by works. Now, I don't think that contradicts Paul, but I just want to say James has a very, says there's a very important role for works in our lives, right? But I saw this a few years ago, and it was really striking to me. When you go into chapter 3 and he starts talking about the tongue, what does he say in chapter 3, verse 2? He says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If you don't stumble in what you say in your speech, you're perfect. But no Christian is perfect. Actually, what, how did he start the verse? For we all stumble in many ways. Well, well what, is, 
What does James mean by stumble? Well, he uses the verb. It's not, it's not always clear in all our English translations, but he uses the verb um, uh, in chapter 2. Chapter 2, let's look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, but that's the word stumble. For those of you who know Greek, it's the same word, patayo. Whoever, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been accountable for all of it. So James is using that word stumble to mean sin, right? For he who said, now he gives an illustration. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law, right? Imagine you're on trial for murder. And, you, and now you have the chance to defend yourself before the judge and the jury. And you stand up and you say, Your Honor, men and women of the jury, I just want you to know, I've never committed adultery. Well, yes, I did murder. That's not going to cut it, right? That's what James is saying. If you, if you violate any part of the law, you're a lawbreaker. If you stumble in one part, if you fail in one part. But let's come back to our verse before us. What does James say? For we all stumble. We all sin in many ways. What, what did James write? Oh, that James, he was a mean preacher. You all stumble in many ways, you bad people. No, no, that's not what he said. He said, we. He included himself, right? We. James isn't saying, why are you so bad, but I'm so good. We. We all. Any exceptions? No exceptions, right? We all stumble. We all sin. A little bit here and there. Oh, in many ways. James has just said you're justified by works, but that must not mean perfection, right? That is so clear. I don't think James is saying, you're all, we're all terrible Christians. <laughs> is that what he's saying? We're all awful. We're all, we're, all we're doing is sinning every day. I don't think James is saying that. Isn't he saying there's imperfection in all of us, and it especially comes out where? In our speech. If you're a very quiet person, it comes out less. I'm a very talkative person. It comes out more, right? We all stumble. That's all of you out there. There's no exceptions. We all stumble in many ways. But that, that stumbling is not the same thing as not persevering, right? Because when we stumble in many ways, what do we do? We pray for forgiveness, right? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. This is one of my favorite verses. Actually, actually, let's read First Thessalonians four, verse one, because we we really see it twice. First Thessalonians four. Fine, this is chapter four, verse one. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God. So we told you. Here's how you ought to... These are new Christians, right? He probably wrote this six months after they were saved. This is how you ought to live. This is how you please God. Just as you are doing. Isn't that great? Here's how I told you to live. 
This is how I told you to please God. You're doing that. Paul's saying, I praise God for you. I'm thankful for you. Just as you're doing, then Paul says, that you do so more and more. Isn't he saying, you're doing well. Praise God. But he doesn't say, well, you're perfect now. You can do better. And he, and he says it. He says it again here. Verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. But by taught by God, I think he's talking about the new covenant, which you can read about in Jeremiah, where that law, by God's grace, is written on our hearts so that as Christians, we have a desire to love one another. That's that law written on our hearts, that law that comes from the new covenant. You have, we have no need to write you about that because God's taught you. You know, if you're a believer, one sign you're a believer is you want to love your brothers and sisters here, which means, right? I said this last night, but we emphasize this a lot in our church. You regularly gather with other believers, Right? Then he says, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. He goes, and you're living it. You're doing it. I think the pastors would say that about this congregation here. He's happy with them. But then he says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Even the best Christians can do better. They're doing great, right? I, you know, I, I, I love this. You know, there's times where congregations need strong words. But isn't that a great model for how to encourage people? To, uh, how to raise children? It, it applies in so many areas, right? Most people, they fundamentally need affirmation and then encouragement to, 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 to do better, right? So um, I remember I thought I was terrible at Spanish. And a Spanish teacher told me, you're good in Spanish. I wanted to be better then, you know? Up to then, I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible in Spanish, you know? But when the teacher said, you're good in it, I thought, oh, I'm good in it. Maybe she was deceived. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it made me want to do better. So, you know, it didn't make me want to stop. So that's, that's a great model for all of us in relationships with others to encourage them and then say, let's go higher. Let's do more. Um, I... I was a, in a church, and this pastor was a godly man. But I think he made a real mistake here. This is how he would talk about coming to Sunday night services. You know, I think he was frustrated. And I know I've been a senior pastor. Sometimes you're frustrated as the pastor, right? And I think he was a little frustrated with the congregation. And, sometimes, and that frustration can spill out, right? So he was talking about coming to the evening service. And he said, we're having an evening service tonight. He would actually say this rather often. I wasn't close enough to him. I was just a 22, 23-year-old kid, really, at the time, to speak to him. I don't know if anybody ever spoke to him about this, but he'd say, we're having an evening service tonight. And a lot of you, he said, aren't going to come. And the reason you're not going to come is you're selfish. You're selfish people. And you're just going to go home and do what you want. And that's why you're not going to come. And I always felt like, whoa. That's not how to motivate people to come to Sunday night service, right? You're selfish, you know? And you ought to come. 
You know, I just think it was his frustration flowing out of him. And that's, that's not how Paul deals with people. I mean, sometimes he has to say hard things, right? But typically, I think he did what he did here. You're doing great. You can do better. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But grow. But well, how does he end? This is the last verse in the letter. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, even the best Christians can do better. So perseverance is not perfection because, because we, what, we, we pray regularly for forgiveness, right? Because secondly, per- perfection is at the resurrection. Third, because the exhortations, the exhortations in the letters show we're not perfect. And, and fourthly, even, even the best Christians, even Christians who are growing and doing well can always, can always do better. And then fifth, this is pretty similar to the second point, but it's, it's a little different facet of the diamond. Perfection, perfection will be ours on the last day. Perfection will be ours on the last day. And I, we see this several places. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. He speaks of what Christ has done to the church. And then he says, so that he might present the church. I, I think that presentation is an end time, final day presentation. So Christ died for the church and loves the church, sanctifies the church, so that he might present the church on the last day to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now look, I believe this is a good church, but you got some spots and wrinkles. I do too, right? Our church does too. There's spots and wrinkles in us and blemishes before that last day. But on the last day, those spots and wrinkles, they're going to be gone. Then, then, we're going to be perfect. So perseverance is not perfection because Paul recognizes, look, there's still spots and wrinkles in the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has now reconciled you, right, believers, in his, in, in his body of flesh by his death. Do you notice how much he emphasizes his death, their body of flesh, right? By his death. In order to present you. There's that word present again. I think that's an end time word. In order to present you on that last day, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Yeah, I mean, we stand in the right before God now. But that perfection will come on that day of, can I use a big phrase? Eschatological presentation. Eschatological just means end, right? An end time presentation. First Thessalonians 3.12. And may the Lord, this is a great prayer. I, I pray this regularly for our church. I pray it for our family. So that, do, you, do you pray for one another as a church? Do you, do you pray for the whole church at times? We, we actually have a church directory at our church. And I pray through certain names in our directory Every day, uh, virtually every day, sometimes I do miss, yeah. But vi- virtually every day, 
And uh, this is one of the prayers I love to pray. May the Lord make you to increase. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. May the Lord make you to increase and abound in love for one another. So may the, may the Lord do that in this assembly, right? Make you, make you increase and overflow in love for one another and for all. I, I love that. And for all. Not just for the people in the church, but may you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Is there anybody you're not loving? Pray that you increase and overflow so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So that, that blamelessness, that perfect love will only be ours at the last day when Jesus comes again. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So I taught for three years at Azusa Pacific University. My first teaching job, I taught there in another century, Right? Even another millennium. So, 1983 to 1986. Azusa Pacific is a broadly, broadly Armenian school. So, you know, it's supported by the uh, wonderful brothers and sisters. You know, Wesleyan Church, Missionary Church, Salvation Army, etc., etc. There were seven supporting churches. But, but the Wesleyan Church believes, you know, John Wesley believed you could be perfect and holy love in this life. And they use this verse to support it, right? May, may God sanctify you completely. You know, it's very interesting when I taught there, though, because, you know, no one, no one ever claimed that. <laughs> None of the teachers, no one ever claimed it. I don't know what it means to have a doctrine that no one experiences, you know, basically, you know? I mean, I was there three years. I never met... And they weren't emphasizing it. You know, it's really back burner stuff. It was there. They didn't deny it. But it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't emphasized. Um, I, I think it's hard to, uh, hard to fit with the rest of the Bible. But I think what Paul is talking about here is that complete sanctification takes place on the last day. Yes, we grow in holiness in this life, right? But, but what does he say in verse 24 the, or, or t- verse 23? Blame us at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. When will you be completely blameless on that last day? But not before. So I, I think that's a misinterpretation of, of the text that is practiced uh, by some, but maybe not so uh, emphasized uh, in these days. And then one more verse. Beloved, 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. What are we now? Isn't that amazing? We're God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. What will we be? Have you thought about that? I'm sure you have. What's what's it going to be like? Well, there's a lot of things we don't know. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When will we be perfect? When he appears on the last day. When he appears, when he comes again, then we'll be like him perfectly, right? Not that we'll be God, but we'll be holy without sin. So, right? 
Perseverance is not perfection because we pray for forgiveness regularly. Breathe in, breathe out because perfection is at the resurrection. Because thirdly, the exhortations and the letters show we're not perfect, right? Fourthly, even the best Christians, even the best Christians can do better. And, and fifthly, perfection will be ours on the last day. And then sixthly, or sixth, sixthly sounds funny, uh, sixth, biographical examples, right? A, a couple examples from, from life. So I'm, I'm going to talk about um, Zechariah and Peter real, real quickly. First, Zechariah. Remember Zechariah and Elizabeth? Gave birth, Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist. This is what we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. I don't think that means they were perfect, but they were a godly couple, an older godly couple who had walked with the Lord for years. But in this very chapter, I believe Zechariah sins. You know, we're told he's righteous. He walks blamelessly. But remember, the angel Gabriel appeals to him, appears to him while he's in the temple, and this is what happened. And he, and he, and he tells him, well, well, the angel tells him, look, you're going to have a child, right? And Zechariah, what does he say in chapter 1, verse 18? How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. A.K.A., I don't believe you. <laughs> you're crazy, Gabriel. I don't believe that. We're too old. What are you talking about? How do I know? And the angel answered them, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Hey, Zechariah, here's why you should believe this. I'm an angel. I just, I'm here. I'm, how many times have you seen an angel? Right? Never. Never before in your life. I'm standing right in front of you and telling you that. That you don't see that every day. Hello, hello, hello. I'm here. That's why you should believe it. And, and also, you, should, you, you know the Bible. You're a priest. Remember Abraham and Sarah? Right? Remember about Isaac and Rebecca? Remember about Samuel and Elkanah? Remember Samson's parents? It's kind of, it's in your own Bible, right? Did you ever read those stories? So, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe my words. And failure to believe is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin, Paul says, right? That's sin. He sinned. That doesn't take away from verse 6 of chapter 1, right? The angel wasn't saying, you're a terrible person, Zechariah. You're an utter failure, you know? You're going to hell, right? No, no, he's a godly person. But he was a sinner, like all of us, right? Like all of us. You know, you know by the way, I always like to contrast it with Mary. Why wasn't Mary, when Mary says, you know, the same thing the angel says, and, and, and you're going you're gonna to have a child, and Mary also asks the question. She's like, I have a question, how do I have a child without sexual relations? 
and she's not rebuked because that's never happened before, right? That has never happened before. And she's, she's, and she's not answering that question because she doesn't believe. She's just saying, can I have a little explanation there of what's going on? So that's a different situation. Then last example, Peter was a very godly man, right? But even after Pentecost, he sends in, 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 uh, in Syrian Antioch because he's eating meals with the Gentiles and then the men from James came and uh, whatever they said, we don't know exactly what they said, but whatever they said filled Peter with fear and he quit eating with the Gentiles. This is the bold apostle who's even gone to prison now for Jesus' sake, and yet he becomes fearful and quits doing the right thing. But Peter was a very godly man. So, so, so we have biographical examples of this as well, that perseverance is not perfection, right? Because we pray. We pray for forgiveness regularly every day because perfection is that the resurrection because thirdly, the exhortations in the letters show we're not perfect. Fourth, even, even, even the best Christians, right, can do better. Fifthly, because perfection is at the last day. And then when we read, sixthly, biographical examples, when we read stories in the Bible, we see that people fall short. So when we talk about perseverance, perseverance doesn't mean we don't fight, Right? And fail some. And that we don't regular, we're not regularly confessing our sins. That's not what perseverance says. So don't hear me saying we need to persevere to the end to be saved. Well, we're not saying we have to be perfect. That's not what the Bible is saying. No, sin still, sin still marks our lives. No excuses, right? I'm not excusing any sin. Zechariah is not excused. Gabriel doesn't say, well, that's okay. Right? That's still a sin. It's still wrong. But, but, but he's still a, a believer, right? Still belongs to God. So tomorrow, tomorrow morning, so the, here's the other thing. Perseverance is not perfection, but it's perseverance works righteousness, right? And then I'm going to say, as you would expect, I'm going to say, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. And so let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. Lord, we thank you for the balance of your word. We, we recognize we have to put the whole Bible together to understand it well. That we have to compare different verses and different texts to have a good understanding. And Lord, we pray you'd give us that good understanding. And Lord, help us, uh, especially anyone who, who struggles in here with uh, deep introspection and, and strong feelings of self-condemnation. Help, help, uh, and I'm sure all of us do at times, but help, help in particular those struggling with such things to uh, recognize that in Jesus' cross and resurrection there is great forgiveness and that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins. We rejoice in that great truth in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, brother. That was very helpful. I know many of you here tonight, this is your home church, your members, you've committed to this body. Um, tomorrow morning, we're going to continue our time together with Dr. Schreiner. Uh, last night, he made an argument 
He's continuing to kind of tease that out, and then he'll bring the conclusion to light uh, tomorrow morning, but really the, the corporate gathering, the second service tomorrow. And I know that many of you will not come to Sunday school tomorrow. And the reason for that is because you are selfish. I could say that. I'm not going to say that. I could say that. What I do want to say is please come back. Please come back tomorrow at 9 o'clock for the Sunday school hour. Don't miss out. Uh, again, it is not perseverance. is not works righteousness. That'll be uh, tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, right here. And then we'll gather again together at 1030, and he'll finish our time. So uh, I would like to open the floor for Q&A. Hey, listen, at brunch today, this brother told us, man, I got some of the best questions yesterday, yesterday evening, but they were after the Q&A. We missed out. We want to hear your questions. And so if you have good questions, if you have any questions, uh, please ask. So we got some brothers with microphones ready. Who has a question tonight? Over here. Yeah, we'll bring you a mic. I was just wondering if you might comment on um, Matthew 5:48. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, a very important text and crucial text. So, I read a book when I was a new Christian from a great believer who had a lot of influence on me, named Andrew Murray, and he, he wrote a book called "Be Perfect." So some people read commands like that and they conclude, since there's such a command, we're able to fulfill it. I think that's a mistake. I think God commands us to be perfect and because of sin, we're not able to be. But we're supposed to be. So that's how, you know, that's putting the whole Bible together. Other people read commands like that and say, yeah, we, we can actually do that. That's more in the Arminian tradition. That, the interesting thing, at least what's happening in theological circles today, even Arminians are really pulling back from that. Uh, they don't emphasize it very much. But yes, yeah, some people read the text that way. But I think God gives us commands, be perfect, and you're not able to. Yeah. So we could talk about other texts, but if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. So, some, you know, I mean, I could keep going. Some Arminians say, well, yeah, but that's about non-Christians. But I think, I think John is addressing people who claim to be believers. So I think that's a problem with the, the view, well, that's about non-believers. Because they're claiming to be believers. So then the test, so, you know, if I keep going, then the test, the test becomes, well, if I'm really a believer, that test doesn't apply to me. But then that becomes, I think, very dangerous because now somebody's saying, well, yeah, 1 John 1, 8 doesn't apply to me. It only applies to non-believers. So, anyway, yeah. All right, in the back over here. What advice would you give a youth to prepare for worship? I mean, hardship. What advice would I give to uh, for a youth? Did you say for hardship? To prepare for hardship. To prepare for hardship. To prepare for hardship. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I think the, the first thing I'd say is, yeah, hardship's going to come. Yeah, everybody's, everybody's going to go through hard times. Of course, you don't know what those hardships will be. God doesn't disclose that to us, what the hardships will be. But, um, but, he'll, give, but he'll give you strength when you go through them. And uh, I'll just tell you really quick, we were talking about this a little bit at dinner. The, you know, the hardest thing I went through in my life in 2012, my wife, Diane, sitting right here, almost died. She was in a bicycle accident. She, for the first two weeks, she wasn't wearing a helmet. She forgot. For the first two weeks, she, was in, she, she had to have a craniotomy. So for the first two weeks, uh, she was barely awake. Then for five more weeks, the first few days, we didn't know if she was going to live. And then we didn't know if she'd be, uh, where she'd be mentally, whether she'd be mentally challenged all the rest of her life. And, and she broke a, a, quite a few bones and so forth and so on. So that was a really hard time. I mean, it was a very difficult time. But here's what I experienced at that time that was really wonderful. That when it was really hard, God drew very near me. And I would even say it was almost like a second conversion. Now, I was already a Christian. But I saw, oh, wow. You know, I don't want that to happen again tomorrow. <laughs> it was hard. But on the other hand, when a hard time comes in your life, I saw, you know, God is faithful and God, God, God drew near. God strengthened me. But God didn't strengthen me the day before for the hard time, you know? If I think of the hard time, you know, I can, even then, I tend to be a worrier about the future. Oh, what's going to happen in the future? Well, how am I going to handle it? Well, when I'm worrying, I don't have the strength because it's not happening. <laughs> but when that hard time comes, God's with us. So, so I think we have to say, yes, there'll be hard times. We don't know what they're going to be. God will help us, you know? There's a, there's a river, right, Psalm 46 says. That, that, that strengthens the city of God. God is our very present help in a time of trouble. So when, when that trouble comes, he, he'll, he'll be there. He'll, he'll support you. That doesn't mean, you know, I, I don't want to be simplistic. I had moments where I felt great desolation. When, you know, the first, the first night I walked home and she wasn't, in, you know, she wasn't in our home and I thought, man, I may never see her in our bedroom together again. I may the rest of my life be sleeping alone. I felt very desolate at that moment. So I had moments of, you know, feeling very low. I'm not, I'm not denying that. But God strengthened me in the midst of it. So, yeah. Right over here. Yes. Man, the young people are leading by example. I love this. <laughs> uh, I'm just confused. If what... Um... You know what? Other countries who don't believe in God, yeah. you know them. Walk when they say that they're um. When other people start to follow Jesus in their countries, um, when the Bible says "do not murder," why do they um still? Why do they murder? So, so why do non-Christians in those countries murder Christians? Is that what you're asking? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Well, you know, Jesus warned us that would happen, didn't he? Jesus warned us that when people become believers, they will be hated. 
and some will be put to death. That happened from, you know, the, the Apostle Paul was put to death. So I think when, when, a, when people become Christians, it can be very threatening uh, and, and even convicting to non-Christians. And one way they can respond, most of the time they don't respond this way, but one way they can respond is by getting very angry because they feel convicted of their own sin, but they don't want to admit it. So they can get very angry and, and put to death believers. So I, I think that's what they, they they're, they're, it's like Cain and Abel, right? He felt jealous of how godly Abel was and that God commended Abel and he felt so jealous he finally killed him. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Uh, in the front, Andy. This is kind of a discussion question between my wife and I. So we were talking about this last night, and it was kind of ironic that we had similar questions on our mind, and when we got talking about it, it came out. But you mentioned about a married couple that you, I think, had led to the Lord, and you said this was when you were 21, and you told the lady, hey, now that you're saved, you know, doesn't matter what you do now, everything is fine. And then later... Uh, she had left her husband, and I, I think you said that you had never known her to return to the faith. We also, you know, see family members, we see friends and acquaintances who have professed faith, and then they drift away. And so I guess this being a two-part question, if you could go back to the lady that you talked to, if you could maybe rephrase your statement to her about what the future holds, or if you could see her now and you could advise her the same way in which when we see those people who we know have professed salvation, but they don't have that fruit in their life and, and you know, it's not ours to judge, and I realize that, but sometimes there are, there are triggers that kind of help us to understand. And, and I guess this came up in a conversation that I had this week with a gentleman who professed knowledge of Christ, and he had lots of lingo. He could talk it, and he, you know, expounded on his youth and what all he knew. And, but, and I just told him plain out, I said, I don't see any evidence of Christ in your life. And, you know, and I offended him a little bit. And I, I wasn't doing it to offending, but I, at the same time, I felt like I had to be honest with him because I felt like he was deceived in what he had as a false sense of security. That may be a little bit jumbled up question, but where I'm trying to get at is expound on what you see in people that help you determine whether they're believers who have sinned and are fighting the battle, or whether there's those that just have never been become believers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and I wish I would have said to my friend Amy at the beginning what I read in the scriptures last night. You need to continue in the grace of God. That's what I didn't say to her. But yeah, I mean, I think even the example you gave is exactly right. I have another person I'm really close to. And I prayed with her to become a Christian. 
And then she started living in pretty blatant sin. Living with someone, doing some, you know, getting drunk, so forth and so on. So I said to her, I saw her, and it, pretty much what you said, I said, I said to her, by this, we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And I said, I don't see any evidence that you know him. I think that was the right thing to say. That was hard to say. That, that, that wasn't received gladly. But I think that was the right thing to say. So, so he, and actually that person's come back. Praise God. That person's come back. I'm sure they're a believer. That was many years ago I said that. And uh, they didn't come back the day I said that. <laughs> that did not happen. It took several years, actually. Um, but I think that was the right thing to say. But here's another thing that's really helped me. So, you know, you look out on a person. They've made a profession of faith and they've wandered. Were they never saved? Or... Are they an unbeliever or are they just lapsed for a while? And I, I came to the realization, I don't know that. I don't know. Maybe they're really a Christian and they're just lapsed for a while. Maybe they're not a Christian at all. But the, here's the great thing that really freed me up. I just say the same thing anyway. <laughs> Repent and believe, right? The, the, the evidence you're a believer is if you're repenting and believing regularly. But if you're... You're living in significant, unrepentant sin. And that's what we're talking about, right? Because perseverance isn't perfection. But if you're living in significant, unrepentant sin, what do we say? The, the sign that you're a believer is you're repenting and believing. If you're not doing that, the, the, so this, I got this from John Piper. He was my pastor for 11 years. Piper would say, I'm not saying you're not a believer. I'm saying there's no warrant. I like that word he used. There's no warrant for, for me thinking you're a believer. Maybe you are a believer. There's no warrant out there, though, that you're a believer. There's no evidence, as you said, that you're a believer. So I'm saying to you, repent and believe. But I don't need to know. I mean, obviously, I like to know in some cases. But God doesn't tell us, you know, is that person lapsed or is, are they not a Christian? But fortunately, we can say the same thing, which is wonderful. So turn, turn to Christ. So. We got Rivka. Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'll just I'll make it quick. Um, you mentioned in the first questioner a book by Andrew Murray called uh, About Perfection, and it reminded me of a book that I had read by him years ago when I was going through some hardship, and it was called Abide in Christ, and it took my eyes off of my own hardship and put it on Christ. It was an amazing book. It, it was kind of like you were talking about before, after you experienced your hardship with your wife and how um, you had a kind of another conversion almost. Um, I, that was similar to me after reading Andrew Murray's book. Um, but that's, that's not my question. I, I, my question that I was going to ask is, uh, you had mentioned resurrection a few times through your talk tonight. And I've always been confused a little bit about what what that is and what's going to happen, uh, you know, what the resurrection, what's going to happen. And I think when I read Matthew, um, the, resurrection of, uh, the resurrection account, and just before that, during the death and the resurrection of, of those that had, 
had already died. Um, and then I read about Paul. I read Paul's discussion of the resurrection and his views of the resurrection. And then I read John's views of the resurrection in Revelation 20. But I'm kind of, I guess it's kind of foggy a little bit on what's really going to happen for the resurrection. And the way you spoke tonight made me think that you had studied it some. Is there books that you would recommend going to or, or authors that have more experience with the resurrection? Yeah, good yeah great question. Well, first of all, I want to say, yeah, I think Andrew Murray's book, Abide in Christ, is a great book, and his book, Humility. We, so it's always helpful, right, when we think of authors, whoever they are, that, that, to read them in a, in a right spirit, critically, right, taking what's good, not necessarily accepting everything they said. Uh, in terms of the resurrection, yes, I think the, I think the consistent teaching of Scripture is the resurrection is physical. We, 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 have, we will have physical bodies as Jesus did after he was risen from the dead. We don't know all the details. What does that mean, you know, if, uh, you, know, if, you, were, if you died in a nuclear explosion? But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? I, ba- I think he basically says, he can do it. <laughs> he can do it. I'm not going to explain to you all the details, but he can, out, of, out of that little seed can come a corn plant. He, he, can, he can do that. The best book, uh, I, I don't recommend, speaking of being discriminating, I, I don't recommend him on everything. Uh, I don't like his, what he says about justification. But N.T. Wright's book on the resurrection of the Son of God, that's an amazing book. And, I, and, and Wright, I think, rightly says, look, the Greeks did not believe in a resurrection of the body. They didn't like it. But the, it's very clear. It's very clear, and I think he shows this, with, that, that the, the Jews and, and, and then the Old Testament Jews and the intertestamental period and Christians, they all believed in a physical bodily resurrection. And that, that book, I just want to say, is a really long book, five or 600 pages. But... Um, I think you'd love it. It's not for everybody, you know, but it's a, it's a fantastic book. Yeah. My question is on suffering. So someone had brought that up. Um, I guess there's this idea of standing firm and continuing in the faith and continuing to be a Christian, but there's this point of when God afflicts you or there's suffering in your life, not becoming embittered, but instead, that being a place where you're growing and maturing in your faith and there's trust built and it's an act of worship, um, which is a really painful place to be for any Christian, right? Um, especially when there's a lot of suffering. So one of the things you mentioned is praying the Lord's Prayer. Um, other than what you have already mentioned, are there practical things that a Christian can do where in the midst of the suffering, perseverance looks like the examples we have in the Bible, such as Job, such as Joseph. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think you, I think you suggested good ways to go. I mean, right, to saturate yourself in God's word and to be comforted and strengthened in the word of God, be strengthened by the examples we have in the Bible, like Job, like Joseph, like Jesus. I mean, he's our supreme example, right? But, uh, you know, I just want to mention one text. Second Corinthians 1, Paul says, in 
in all our suffering, God comforts us, strengthens us, so that through the suffering we've received, we can comfort others who are suffering. So I, I think God, I mean, at the end of the day, God never tells Job why he's suffering. You know, if Job wants, here's that, give me a nice little boxed-in answer, and God says, no, I'm not going to give you that. You just trust me. I, basically, I think what God says to Job in chapters 38 through 41, I'm running the world. You're not. Hang on to me. Hang on to me. I'm, I'll run the world. You do your, your thing. Your thing is to trust me. My thing is to run the world. Because so, Job has got, had gotten to the point where, like, God, you're not right. You're not fair. This is not fair what's going on. And God says, uh, Job, you don't know anything, basically. <laughs> You're, you're, you're just not big enough to see what all that's going on here. So you just hang on to me in the midst of it. But, you know, we're told in Second Corinthians 1, God brings suffering into our lives and comforts us, and then we can comfort others. So, I mean, Chris has even told me, right, they've, they've gone through a lot of miscarriages, right? Well, that's super hard and painful and grievous. But... He has a ministry in that area, right? That, you know, we didn't go through that. I, I can't comfort someone. I mean, I, I, I'll be sympathetic, right? But they're, they're going to relate to Chris. And what's your wife's name? Haley. That, that in a way, they don't relate to, to, to Diane and me. So God, one thing God does in suffering is he strengthens us. I, I heard a guy in seminary. His name was Joe Bailey. They lost a kid at infancy. They lost a kid at five. They lost a kid at 16 or 17. I forget the exact age. They lost three kids. And um, he came and spoke to us, and he wasn't bitter. Wow. But also, he told us, and I'll never forget it, he, he was so pastoral. He said, I have lots of opportunity to comfort people who lost children. I mean, I don't want to lose any. I haven't lost any children. I don't want to lose any. You know, I don't, nobody wants to go through that. But... You know, why did he lose three? I, who knows? No, we don't know. You know, that, does that seem unfair? I, we could all say that's too much. But God doesn't answer. I don't think God answers those kind of questions. But God used that to soften him and then make him a vehicle of grace and the gospel for, for other people who are in great pain. So that great pain, and it's just unimaginable, right, that he went through, God used that, and, th- and he does that, I think, in all of our lives, right? That doesn't make the pain any fun. That's, otherwise, it wouldn't be pain. It's very, very painful, but he uses it to sanctify us and also to help others. Yeah. Um, I just want to go back to uh, Matthew 548, the gentleman that asked about, um, therefore be you perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, because I've read that before too, and thinking about being perfect at first glance, you're like, there's no way, for me anyway. And um, But I, I went back and looked at the context of that, and he was talking about loving your uh, neighbor as yourself, or you're taught love your neighbor and then hate your enemy, and he says, but be like your father and love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And so that's kind of what I've learned, and maybe you, I'm sure you do that too, but um, that in the context of that, it shows me that we're supposed to be like God in the sense that 
we love, even though we're hated or we're done evil to, but only with the Father's help can we do that. We cannot do it on our own. So, Yeah, you know, and, and actually some people interpret that verse to say not be absolutely perfect, but be whole. That, uh, yeah, I mean, that interpretation might be right. Certainly, we interpret it in context. That's right. You, there, yeah, there are some disputes on what that means exactly. But, but, I, but I take your point, and I think it's true. Yes, I mean, at least, I don't think we can be perfect. But yes, I think we're transformed. I mean, I think when Jesus, when, I think it's like Philippians 3. Paul says, I'm not perfect. I haven't attained it. I won't attain it. But then he doesn't say, well, I'm sitting back. He says, I'm pressing on. Um, so, yeah, I, do, I, I think that's a really good comment because it's not, well, we're not growing. We're growing. We're becoming more like Jesus. Be holy as I am holy. Well, that's First Peter, right? That's by God's grace, hopefully we're becoming more holy, more mature, more godly. It's a journey. It's a journey. It's a journey. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Over here. Yeah. Mr. Bill. Well, I'm a, I've been a Christian a long time and I've made tons of mistakes. But what I've learned along this journey is I can't be sinless but I can sin a lot less. And when we will seek God first and we will bathe in his word, when we will learn, he loves us so much. He wants to guide us every day. And I'm just an old East Texas redneck. I'm not educated, but I've learned one thing. There's a lot of people in here that are hunters, coon hunting, whatever, over the years. But when he drops the tailgate and tells us to load up in the back, be like a good hound dog. We're just going to load up and let God do the driving. There is absolutely nothing that we can go through that he won't be with us. And there's absolutely nothing that we'll go through that uh, he won't help us to grow. We worry too much. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. But the real scripture says, Don't worry about tomorrow because there's enough trouble today. Let's make it through one day at a time and let God guide us. Don't be discouraged. I mean, in a study like this, it almost says, what's the use? What's the hope? Jesus is our hope. He will guide us every day through anything that we could possibly go through. Just put your trust in him and and hang on. Don't worry about the hardships. Don't worry about COVID. Don't worry about what hasn't happened. Let God guide you daily because he won't leave us. He'll mm-hmm. never forsake us. Amen. Amen. Any more questions? I don't mind a long, awkward silence. I think they're funny. But I'll sit down when it's time to pray. So again, uh, if you do have a question, feel free to come to our brother. Oh, right here. Wow, look at that. Nice. Ava. Where? Uh, Right here in the front. Yeah.
Um, what advice would you give or like passages to read to someone who struggles with the motivation to read their Bible and be in the presence of God more? Yeah, yeah. What, what advice would I give to someone who struggles to read Scripture and be in God's presence more? I, th- I think the first thing I'd say is pray that you'd have more of a desire. I mean, how do you get more of a desire? You ask God to give it to you. So I think that's the place to begin. Pray to do it. Then I think the second thing I'd say is um, do it anyway. (laughs) You know, to build a habit in your life. You know, for me, being in the Word every day, I've done it so long, it's just second nature. I don't even have to think about it. But I did when I was young. I had to think about it. It was like I worked for my dad for 11 years. My dad was a nurseryman outside, and I'd had, every day I had to be there at 10 to 7 in the morning, in the summer. I was always there, whether I felt like it or not. So I, I think, yeah, for pray, but then just do it. Because if you do it and you open your heart and mind to God's word, I think he'll start to stir that desire in you. So, so one, one of the things that we need to learn and to cultivate as Christians is just doing things, even if we don't feel like it. And then I think that feeling will come afterwards. Yeah. All right. Thank you, brother. Let's pray. Yeah. Yeah. Heavenly Father, may we not take this time for granted. We have been together for over an hour and a half singing your word and hearing your word and discussing your word. And for that, we are so grateful. I pray that all of us would have a greater desire to read and study the word of God so that we can know you more, so that we can love you more, so that we can be more in awe of you, O God. I pray that by your grace and by the power of your spirit working through your word in the context of your church, that we would persevere, keeping our eyes on Christ. Thank you again for our brother tonight, uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner. Lord, give him and Diane good rest tonight. Bring them back tomorrow. Bring us all back tomorrow to again feast on your word together for your glory and our good and our growth in Christ's likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.